to, to lead, whether, uh, again, that's official capacity like a Sunday school teacher or a team leader or an elder or this type of thing, or, or just even unofficially, again, by our example to those around us. Every Christian should be a leader. And when we are displaying godly character, this man believed, we will naturally and very frequently rise to positions of official leadership as well. But even if not officially, we will be looked at and looked to by others for leadership just because there's a, a consistency and a goodness to our lives. And as I thought about it, I, I think, well, I, I, I agree with him. And so as such, I thought, well, it'd be beneficial for us to look at the leadership qualities and characteristics that Joshua d- displayed. I mean, we've talked about him several times as this powerful leader over Israel, but we've never really looked at what that meant practically or how that worked out in his life. And that's what I want to focus on this morning. And uh, so um, as we think back on this, we, we notice a lot of space in the book of Joshua has been dedicated to the first three battles that uh, have taken place as they come in to take over the promise. And yet Jericho spent a lot of time on that. And then Ai, uh, and then uh, last week as we looked at uh, the Gibeonites and defending the Gibeonites and this type of thing, we spent a fair amount of time in that. But now, starting in chapter 10, halfway through uh, chapter 10, going through uh, chapters 11 and 12, we get in kind of a wrap-up, very rapid summary form, the rest of the campaign to take over all the rest of the promised land, everything else. And so you get very, uh, uh, again, a synopsis of things going on. And so you read stuff like verse 29, then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Makeda to Libnon, fought against Libnon. The Lord gave it also with its king into the hands of Israel. And then that's followed up and Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Libnon to Lachish and from uh, they camped in by it and fought against it, and the Lord gave Lachish into the hands of Israel. And then the same thing is repeated over and over, and you get this uh, feeling that they, you know, just went bang, 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 which is not quite the way it went. We'll look at that later as it went on. Uh, and the same idea here is repeated for Gezar and Eglon and Hebron and all these different cities. You're just getting this summary form through the end of the chapter. And then chapter 11 gets a little more exciting because that gives us the first major battle of the northern campaign. Remember, they, they went in with Jericho and Israel and Ai and, and Gibeon and split the country in half. And all those cities I just listed were in the southern half. Now they're moving into the northern half and, and we get some exciting stuff in there. But then you get to chapter 12 and all you get is a list of every king and everybody that was conquered from this time. And so now you get some real exciting reading like the king of Jericho, one. The king of Ai, which was beside Bethel, one. The king of Jerusalem, one. The king of Hebron, one. The king of Jumirth, one. The king of Lechish, one. And on and on it goes for 31 kings and cities for the rest of the chapter. Basically, that whole chapter is telling us, got this done, check. Got this done, check. Got this done, check. That, that's what that whole chapter is. But throughout these summaries, we get some good leadership qualities that are exhibited by Joshua. 
So we'll pick up the story and look at that. Last week, we saw Joshua engage the army of five combined kings as part of protecting the Gibeonites. And since God was fighting for Israel, it was a complete rout. And these five armies were fleeing towards their hometowns uh, in some desperate hope to to try to get to the supposed uh, safety of their fortified cities. And so we've got this, this running battle that's going on. And chapter uh, 10, is, uh, and, uh, talking about that, verse 20 says only, only a few of them made it to their cities. But amongst the multitudes that were fleeing, there were five significant men who did not escape. Uh, verses 16 and 17 say, Now these five kings had fled and hidden themselves in the cave at Makkedah. It was told Joshua saying, the five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Makkedah. So apparently, all five kings were together during the heat of the battle and, and you know, probably just running things from their command post. And, and then when the panic set in as, as the battle went against them and for Israel and all the army was taking off, apparently these five kings decided to take off together as well and they were just hightailing it out of their Unfortunately, as kings, they weren't in very good shape because, you know, they're used to telling everybody else to do everything for them and they weren't used to a lot of physical activity themselves and so they didn't have the stamina to keep up. So they looked for a place to hide and there are caves all over that part uh, of Israel and, and, and they found this cave to hide in. And I tell you, caves make really good hiding places unless you get caught. Then they make really good traps. And uh, that's what uh, these people discovered here because some of the Israeli soldiers discovered them slinking into the cave. Now, capturing the king of an army, I mean, that's a big coup. That's a great thing. Getting all five kings in one shot, I mean, that would be a major feat. And generally speaking, especially back in those days of warfare, if you got the king, I mean, it demoralized the rest of the army enough that they either gave up or would run away. So, I mean, it was a big thing to get the king. But in this case, the armies were already running away, right? And so Joshua, he made a quick decision. Check out verses 18 and 19. It says, Joshua said, Roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and assign men by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies. Attack them in the rear. Do not allow them to enter their cities. For the Lord your God has delivered them into your hand. So what's the leadership principle for us in this? Well, just this. Don't let... The bright, shiny objects of immediate gratification distract you from the main goal. Getting these kings, I mean, that would have made Joshua look really good. And it would seem like here's this choice prize standing right there in front of them. But even good things are not good if they distract you from accomplishing your long-term goals, your main priorities. And Joshua realized that the main objective of that day was not to get the five kings, but to defeat and eliminate these armies so that they could continue to uh, co- uh, their conquest and, and eventually uh, settlement of the land. And therefore, he bypassed that immediate gratification in order to continue working on the main objectives. So helping everyone around you stay on task when they're 
tempted to get diverted uh, by something else, especially something that appears to be admirable? Well, that's a good leadership quality. Maybe you could sum it up by saying a leader knows what the priorities are and sticks to those priorities. So what's priorities for you as a Christian? You know, there's some priorities that are the same for all of us, no matter what else is going on in life. But if you're a Christian, uh, there's some that are, are there for e- each and every single one of us. For instance, Second Peter uh, commands us, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, every single one of us needs to make a priority of of that personal spiritual growth, of doing just that, and, and not allow other things, even some other very good things, to distract us from that. If you're too busy to consistently do the things you need to do in order to grow spiritually, that's a problem. We need to know what this priority is and, and stick to it. There's another one for us all. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making His appeal through us. Every single one of us should have a priority of sharing the love and grace that we have found uh, in Jesus Christ. Sharing with those whom God puts in our sphere of influence. So we look for opportunities to fling seeds around, to show God's kindness and and look for openings to talk about and share our faith. And of course, the best opening is when people ask us questions. Why? Why do you do that? Why don't you do this? Why do you believe this or that? Those are the best opportunities. But if we maintain our priorities, then that means looking for, being aware of, and taking advantage of these opportunities that God would bring into our lives. Those, those are two things that would be a priority for every Christian. But then there'll be some other priorities depending on your circumstances and maybe your calling from God. If you're a husband or, or a wife or a parent, God has designed certain priorities for you. If you're a boss or an employee, there are some others. If, if the Lord has called you to a specific ministry within the church, there's still other priorities. The point is, we need to know what those priorities are because a lot of immediate short-term gains that come along that seem very appealing and look very good uh, will distract us if we're not certain of what our priorities are. So a good leader knows his priorities, not going to get distracted by other things. Now, that doesn't mean that Joshua just let the five kings go, right? I mean, it was important to deal with them too at the right time. So when that time comes, Joshua does something that might seem a little bit barbaric to us and our sensibilities right now. After uh, running, this running battle is over, then they return to the cave where the five kings were trapped and guarded, right? And it says, then Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring these five kings out to me from the cave. So they did just that. And, and then Joshua called all his military leaders together, not, not the whole army, just the military leaders at this point, got them all gathered together. And when they were assembled together, he forced those five kings to lie prostrate on the ground in, in front of everybody. And then he told his captains, his le- military leaders, to stand over them and put one foot on the necks of these guys. 
And this was a position of humiliation for these kings and of dominance for Israel. And then here's what he said. Joshua said to them, Do not fear or be dismayed. Be strong and courageous. For thus, and I have to imagine, when he said thus, he gestured to these kings lying in the dust before them with with these guys with their feet over the top of their necks. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies with whom you fight. So what's the leadership principle for us? Well, again, Joshua understood the need for strong, visible encouragement for those who are under him. I mean, this thing that he did was for a visual aid for what God had said and promised he would already do. And, and, and as I mentioned at the beginning, because we get the major part of this military campaign in just a few chapters with these rapid-fire verses like that, we might get the impression that Israel just kind of waltzed into the promised land, had a few minor skirmishes, and then set up shop, and everything was hunky-dory after that. And that is not the way it went at all. In fact, uh, uh, after this particular incident of what Joshua is doing right here, there was about seven more years of military campaigns listed in just those verses. A long, hard, arduous, dangerous road ahead for these soldiers. And, and, and they needed some encouragement that would stick with them, a visual aid that would come to their mind, that would remind them uh, of this truth of what God was doing for them through all of those hard times. And you got the, the hot, weary days, the cold, lonely nights away from their family. They would remember this scene that Joshua had done for them, that encouragement. Now, obviously, as we're carrying this over for us, Standing on the necks of uh, of some people was a visual aid that would only work in some very specific, limited circumstances, right? Don't don't send your kids out on the playground and and, uh, I declare, you know, we're not doing that type of thing here. Uh, But we do know that the idea of encouraging those who are around us, and especially as leaders, to encourage uh, those whom we might be leading is something that all of us as Christians are called to do. First Thessalonians 5.11 tells us, Therefore, encourage one another and build one, up one another just as you also are doing. I mean, this is something every Christian should do. But again, it's especially important for leaders. And I know for me, just, just quite honestly, it's, it's not something that I... I'm naturally good at it. It's something I need to work on and, and try to improve. So if you, especially this creative idea of how to create visual aids of encouragement. I mean, I would have never thought of doing that with the king. So if you've got some good ideas for what we can do in the church, let me know. I'm all open for that. But the real question is not about me, right? It's, it's about you. How are you going to encourage those that you might be leading? Your spouse, your children, your co-workers, your friends, whoever it might be. Now, moving on, as we look through the progression of victories for Joshua, I think there's a third leadership quality that stands out that, uh, that we need to get, and it's this. He did not allow his early errors to immobilize or defeat him. A good leader must be able to move past his or her mistakes and keep doing what God has called them to do. 
I mean, you remember early on, Joshua and Israel had just experienced the rush of that very first victory in the promised land over Jericho. And then Joshua rashly authorized an attack on the smaller town of Ai without seeking God first. And it ended up in failure and disaster and loss of life for Israel. And then, not very long after that, Joshua again blew it by not seeking the Lord when the Gibeonites came looking to make a treaty with them, something God had strictly forbidden. And so now, I have no doubt that Satan was, was trying to desperately capitalize on those mistakes because that's what he does. As soon as you make any mistake, Satan's going to try to capitalize on that. And he'll do that by whispering in your ear the things that I imagine he whispered in Joshua's ear. Boy, you certainly blew it big time there, didn't you? You got mud on your face, you big disgrace, you know, type of thing. And uh, you're just useless now as far as serving God goes. You might as well give up. Why even bother trying to live this Christian life? It's too hard and you can't do it and you just failed anyways. And, and, and you might as well just forget about this whole idea of ever serving God again because he'll never let you be back in leadership. And, and, and he probably doesn't even want you around anymore. Those are the kinds of things... Satan says when we fail. And maybe some of you have heard those whispers in your ear before. Well, don't be taken in by them. Follow the example of Joshua who did make sure his heart was right with God, but then relying on God's grace and strength and power, he continued on. He was able to do what the Apostle Paul told the Philippians and all of us that we should do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Don't let past mistakes immobilize you. You are not defined by the mistakes you have made. You are defined by the grace and forgiveness and power of God to transform your life. So continuing on, a fourth principle of leadership is you must trust God fully. As Joshua went through this campaign, he saw that God would do what he said he would do over and over again, right? He saw it in Jericho. He witnessed it again with the five kings and what God said he would do there. And now, as Joshua is beginning the the, the northern campaign to head into the northern part of Israel, that trust in God was going to be tested even more and in a bigger way than it ever was before. The opening paragraph of chapter 11 tells us about the most powerful king in the northern part of Canaan. It was Jabin, king of Hazor. And the cities in the north were much, much bigger than than the southern cities. Uh, In fact, Hazor was built on this big mound, and it had both an upper and a lower city. And the upper city was about 25 acres in size and well fortified. But then the lower city below that was about 185 acres. So over 200 acres in all. And you're remember Jericho? It was nine or ten acres big. So, I mean, we're talking huge cities compared to what they'd already encountered. And, and, um, 
when Jabin heard what was going on, he decided, we're getting everybody. We're getting everybody together. And so the first three verses tell you about all the people he invited to the party, east, west, north, and south, and all of that. And then verse 4 says, they came out, they and all their armies with them, as many people as the sand that is on the seashores, with very many horses and chariots. Now, the, the ancient Jewish historian, a guy named Josephus, he claims that this army was somewhere between three and 400,000 strong. Now, where he got that number, nobody knows for sure because the Bible didn't record it. Uh, probably uh, passed down through oral tradition from generation to generation uh, with the Jews. But, but whether that is accurate or not, the Bible does make it clear that Joshua was vastly outnumbered in this campaign. And Joshua, he knew his command from God because it hadn't changed from the beginning, right? God said, go in, conquer, subdue the land, and settle the promised land. That's what he's supposed to do. However, if there was ever a time when the Yabbats might come out of Joshua, this would be it. You know, God says, go in and conquer. And you can see Joshua going, yeah, but have you seen the size of their army, God? I mean, it's huge. And, and, and they got us outnumbered 10 to 1. And God says, go in and concert, uh, conquer. Well, yeah, but did you notice they got horses? I mean, you know how much damage a guy on horseback can do to our foot soldiers and stuff like this? And God says, go in and conquer. Yeah, but have you seen their, their superior technology? I mean, these guys got chariots. Chariots are, are lethal. And God says, go. And, and God gave the same encouragement this time that he gave every other time. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be fighting for you. Although he did take into account the potential yabats from, from Joshua. It says, then the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid because of them. For tomorrow at this time, I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. See, all the logical arguments were against Joshua. They were vastly outnumbered. The enemy had top-notch uh, uh, equipment, highly trained soldiers. But Joshua, as a good leader, fully trusted God. Now, how do we know? How do we know that he fully trusted God? You see, there's only one way to know if someone trusts God. Because anybody can say they trust God. Oh, I believe God. Yeah, I, I, lots of people say, oh, sure, I believe in God and all this kind of stuff. There's only one way that you know if they trust. You know someone trusts when they obey. When they actually act on or do what God says. So we keep reading. Joshua and all the people of war with him came up on them suddenly by the waters of Merimon and attacked them. The Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel so that they defeated them. Joshua did to them as the Lord had told him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Joshua did what God... He, we know he trusted him because Joshua followed through. Okay, I'll go. I'll, I'll attack. I'll conquer. I'll do the things you do. And then Joshua turned to get the head of the snake, you know, Jabin uh, uh, and the city of Hazor there. Then Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor and struck its king with the sword. For Hazor was formerly the head of all these kingdoms. Man, I, I loved when we got to go to Israel visiting Hazor. We got to visit the, the digs at Hazor. They've excavated the upper city down to that point 
uh, of, of the time of Joshua and the conquest. So yeah, we got a couple of pictures. I took a picture of the signs when we went there so I could remember what was on my, my camera afterwards. So that tells the story. But you can go to the next one. Uh, you can see there's different layers as they're digging down. But go to the next slide here. Right there. One of the ways they can date this uh, is, is by the, the type of um, uh, uh, building structures they do. And, and these were the individual bricks. And in there you see the little lines going back and forth. Those are bits of straw. That was the way, remember how the, the people in Egypt were making the bricks when they were slaves there? You had to mix straw with clay and stuff. Well, that was the technology, building technology of the time. And so this same building technology was being used in Israel at Hazor at that time. So this helps date this to the exact time of Joshua. Uh, go on to the next picture. Uh, now we're down to the lower parts of the city. Next picture. Here we have one of those bricks with straw in it, but you notice something on the bottom there, blackened. And our tour guide said, this is throughout the city as they're doing the dig, and what that indicates is that this town at this time, at the time of Joshua, was destroyed by a major fire. And you read in Joshua 11, and he, that's Joshua, burned Hazor with fire. So go back to that slide. Here we have, over 3,000 years later, the evidence of Joshua's obedience still around. We know he trusted God because in the face of adversity and tremendous odds against him, he completely obeyed God and went in and did what God had commanded them to do. So here's my question for us. Will the evidence of your life say the same thing about you? Will people know that you fully trusted God because they see it in the way you live, in the obedience of your life, and how you face the ups and downs of life, how you deal with adversity, how you deal with setbacks? You know, these first three qualities of leadership, I mean, they would be good for anybody, whether they're a Christian or not. Right? You know, you know your priorities and, and don't get distracted by short term gains or build up and encourage those around you and, and don't let your past mistakes immobilize you. That would be good for anyone. But this fourth quality is distinctly Christian. True biblical leaders will fully trust God, and the evidence of that fully trust is by completely obeying. That's what we're called to do. Let's pray. Father God, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it encourages us, trains us, and teaches us. But God, we pray that today we would understand and know that you desire to work in our lives and through our lives. And so may we submit ourselves to you. May we be the kind of men and women you desire us to be. And most of all, God, we pray that we would be obedient as we trust you in every aspect of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you all would stand and join us for the last song.
Can you remember that, Ms. Lambert? Do you remember using that? 